We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome back this evening. This is our live stream portion of the service. We just got done with our prayer time. And uh, we turn our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 27. If you would join me there in Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 26. Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 26. We uh, began to look at this segment of Scripture, which I simply titled by the activities that happened in it, the Messiah was scourged, mocked, and crucified. And so we've come all this way in our study over a year uh, in length in the Gospel of Matthew, and here we are in Matthew 27. We did address from verse 26 up to verse 34 last time. Let me just review some of that for you. We saw that uh, Pilate released Barabbas, that robber, uh, that actually rebel, insurrectionist, uh, to the crowd, and instead he scourged Jesus and delivered Jesus to be crucified. So Jesus became, in effect, the substitute for Barabbas, which is a very sad thing, but in effect, uh, it's an example of how he became a substitute for us in our need of salvation. So uh, a great injustice led to a great rescue for God's people. So he handed Jesus over to be crucified. That didn't just mean they immediately nailed him to a cross. They first went through a lot of other things. Um, they took him to the uh, Praetorium, the uh, palace of the uh, governor, gathered uh, hundreds of soldiers, it seems, around him. There could have been as many as 600, but I speculated that some were not on shift at that time. Maybe they had the night shift, and so they weren't there during the morning. So they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. They made a makeshift crown of thorns out of whatever they could find, some thorny vines uh, that they probably pulled out of, the, out of a spot that was growing up in a corner that was unkempt and put it on his head and beat it down on there and gave him a reed as a rod, uh, a scepter, and then mocked him by pretending to bow down to him as king and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him, they hit him, and then they mocked him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Uh, Of course, before that, we mentioned already that he had been scourged, and uh, Becky alluded to that in her prayer, that terrible process of of, uh, tearing the skin off the back of a man when he was scourged, and uh, it was uh, nearly itself a death sentence, nearly. Uh, and, and certainly in those days, without modern medicine, antibiotics, and all of that, it would have almost certainly led to many deaths uh, and certainly great pain and suffering for the one who ser- was served uh, that punishment. Uh, verse 32, they found a substitute cross-carrier or cross-bearer, Uh, a man named Simon from Cyrene or Cyrene, and they compelled him to bear the cross of Jesus. That's interesting when you think about how the Lord said that each of us should take up our cross daily and follow him. Here's a man who took up the literal cross 
and, and on his back or shoulder and carried it for the G- Jesus who was at that time too weakened physically to be able to do so. Here's the creator of the universe physically too weak to carry a, for, for him would be a small little stick of wood for the, for the creator of the universe. But he was subject to human limitation. And they came to Golgotha, that is the place of a skull, either because the shape of the hill was a skull kind of shape with indentations that looked like eyes and a nose and a mouth, or perhaps because there were human skulls piled up on that hill, that location, because it was the place where people had been crucified many, many times. The Lord then refused the sour wine mingled with gall to drink, um, bitter, probably myrrh, which was used as a... um, how do you call it, anesthetic, put somebody to, you know, out of their misery kind of thing, um, you know, like a heavy, heavy alcohol or something like that, but he would not drink it because he was not going to shortcut or be in some kind of um, stupor when he was hanging on the cross. When we get to the uh, other Gospels, especially in, in here as well, we'll see that he actually is speaking in a very coherent fashion despite his weakened uh, and painful state, so he didn't want to be um, left out uh, of his brain, so to speak, to not be able to do that. So he didn't take that. Verse 35, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. It says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Uh, I'll get into a little bit of a technical matter here just for a moment, and that is this idea of fulfillment does throw people a lot for a loop. Um, and so there's a bit of debate here. First of all, could it be that it was a fulfillment by analogy? And there's, there's basically two options. You know, I'll take the first one here first. Is it a fulfillment by analogy? Like David was in, in, in Psalm, um, when he was speaking this way in Psalm 22:18. Was he speaking in the sense that he was expressing his own genuine feelings that God had abandoned him? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Early in Psalm 22. And you remember, if you know your biblical history, that there were a number of times in which the Lord Jesus, uh, or which, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself, in which David was seemingly abandoned by God. Absalom, remember, got kicked him out of the city. He had to leave. He was... He was being hunted by Saul before that. I mean, he was a man of miseries in some times. You know, you could call him almost a man of sorrows. Uh, he had a, a many good times as well. But um, David became a pattern for the righteous sufferer, and Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of that pattern. Not that David was saying, hey, there's going to come a guy in the future whose bones won't be broken and he'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they'll divide his garments among them and all of that. Um, I favored this viewpoint that it's an analogy. That David was expressing poetically some feelings of abandonment and terrible situation that he had. And Jesus was pulling that from the Old Testament and saying, that's me now. I'm feeling that way. And by the way, whether you believe this approach to that psalm or that interpretation or not, you be sure to know that when you are feeling like that, like David was or like Jesus was, you can appropriate those words for yourself, can't you? 
and it's okay. You're not stealing, okay? You're borrowing them for your own use, all right? So, you know, whether or not it's an analogy in your view here, you make sure to know that you can feel like the righteous sufferer David did or Jesus and use some of those same words from the Psalms, words of lamentation and woe and so on. But the language that David used in his predicament is so close to the same that the Messiah was suffering and experiencing that it can be used to describe the same things, even though David did not intend, I think, his audience, that's okay, John, just a distraction. Even though uh, David did not intend his audience to think, oh, this refers to Jesus, they couldn't possibly have done that. The other approach that's used to this is that, hey, this must be a fulfillment in terms of an explicit prediction. And in Psalm 22, David intended for the audience to apply this to the Messiah. They couldn't miss it. Well, I think many of them did miss it, even if you know, we think they couldn't miss it. Um, and if that's the case, I think that it must be true then that something like what we read in Acts chapter 2, don't turn there, just know that Peter has already kind of uh, dealt with this issue for us and he said in Acts 2.30, when he talked about David's prophecy about not seeing corruption, you know, you're, you won't allow your Holy One to see corruption. Peter says this, Therefore, about David, being a prophet, so David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, that is David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. So in that particular instance, in Psalm 16, David is saying something that he knows is not going to happen to himself. David is dead and buried, and his body has seen corruption. Peter goes on, actually, to say that. And so David is saying, I know God has promised me a seed, a Messiah, to come from my line, so I'm going to talk about him now in Psalm 16. And so that's where then then this passage in Psalm 16 becomes a prophecy. And maybe Psalm 22 is exactly like that. Many would argue that. And I don't, you know, have a big dog in the fight or anything. I'm just saying those are the two possible ways to take this fulfillment uh, expression and how to understand it. To me, uh, Psalm 16 could not apply to David because he's going to die and be buried and see corruption. Psalm 22, however, could apply to David. Think about it. Did he think God had forsaken him? Yes, but at the end of the psalm, he realized God never actually forsook him, right? God will not, I will not leave you nor forsake you, but sometimes don't you feel like he has left you or forsaken you? But you know better in your, in your mind, you know better, but sometimes you feel like, oh, this is bad, you know? Um, Maybe David experienced somebody uh, haggling over his clothes. Think about it. If you're kicked out of Jerusalem and your son comes in and he's going to take over the kingdom, he might be rummaging through the closet and say, I'll, t- I'll take this regal robe. I'll take this crown. I'll take this jewelry. I'll take this. This is for me. They divided my garments among them and cast lots. Hmm, maybe. That may be a possibility. Well, anyway, just to kind of whet your appetite for thinking about these things. Regardless of the view that you take about the nature of the fulfillment, let this fact sink in. 
The soldiers were taking the last shred of personal property that Jesus owned, his very clothes off of his back, as he hung there nearly, if not entirely, naked on the cross as he was being abused. They were taking the condemned men's clothing and absconding with it for themselves. Remember I said last time, I don't even know why they would want to do that because after he had been scourged, they put his clothes back on him. Don't tell me those clothes did not get stained with blood. They, they were soaked with blood, disgusting. And yet they wanted those to take them, I guess, and wash them or have them for a prize or something like that. But it is still true today that after a person dies, they don't need any of their clothing. They don't need their stuff. They don't need their cars, their houses, their lands, anything. It's all over. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 6, the Bible very clearly tells us that you, know, you can't take it with you. There is no, as they often say, no U-Haul to heaven. Uh, I'll tell you about a picture I saw one time that uh, was interesting uh, about that, but I won't go through that right now. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 6, it says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these let us be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and in perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. That's just another one of those hazards in the world that Satan uses to allure us away from the faith. Money, things, materialism, you know, get you focused on all of that and get you pulled away from the things of God. It's a very clever and very powerful technique that is used on people. And these guys here were, were demonstrating it. They didn't care about the guys dying up there on the crosses. They just wanted the clothing. You know, the guys weren't even dead yet, and they just were taking that clothing. Now, the Bible then tells us that the soldiers sat there and they kept watch in verse 36, and I couldn't help but think, what are they keeping watch about? I mean, the guys on the cross probably aren't going anywhere fast <laughs> if they fix them on there properly. So they, maybe they're keeping the crowds away, the gawkers, people who would try to rescue these, these men on the cross. I mean, you can figure... Um, some gang of criminals that lost their buddy might come and try to take their buddy back off the cross and save his life. Um, so who knows? And then they also, it says in verse 37, they put up a, a, a plaque-like, perhaps hastily inscribed plaque that said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, this plaque would typically have been the charged crime against the criminal, you know, rebel, uh, thief. Uh, and what's Jesus' crime? That he's Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's it. In fact, there's no crime. Uh, there's only his identity. That's who he was. In fact, they spoke more truly than they knew. They spoke more truly than they knew. Now, I want to spend a moment talking to you about verse 38 because it says there, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand 
and the other on the left. When you think of the death penalty, as we talked about in Genesis 9-6 some weeks ago now, you have to realize that it's supposed to be used only for crimes that are significant enough to warrant them. I mean, you don't, uh, you know, execute the death penalty on a kid who takes a piece of candy from a store, okay? Uh, and so when it says that these are um, robbers, you might think, oh, man, that's pretty rough. You know, it's like in Saudi Arabia, you get caught stealing, they cut your hand off. I mean, come on, give me a break. That's a little bit excessive, you know. Make the guy pay back what he stole. In the Old Testament, add one-fifth, or in other words, you stole 10 bucks, you return 10 bucks plus 20%, 12 and, and make it right, and just go on with life. Don't throw them in jail. Make them pay, and then just forget about the whole thing. You know, we might have less people in jail if we had that sort of system today. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, were they truly thieves, stealers, you know, robbers? Why were they being killed for a property crime? We don't kill people for property crimes today. Um, but the word for thief is a little broader than it is in, in um, English or robber. In, in Greek, the word can refer to a, a bandit or a highwayman, you know, like a, you think of a stagecoach, uh, what do they call those guys that would rob a stagecoach, you know, at gunpoint back in the Old West. Uh, maybe somebody like that, but it also can refer to a revolutionary or insurrectionist, a rebel, a guerrilla fighter, like Barabbas, in fact, in John 18, verse 40, John says Barabbas was a robber. Well, we know that he was more than just a thief because it says that he had committed insurrection and he had committed murder in the, insurre in the act of insurrection. So uh, Mark says that they had committed murder there. So it's entirely possible that Jesus was there in the middle and there were two murderers hanging there next to him on the right side and on the left side, not just people who, you know, stole five bucks from the local convenience store. Don't think of it that way. So, uh, you know, murderous rebels, outlaws, which makes their punishment more fitting to the nature of the crime, uh, which certainly I don't think was merely a property crime. But I'm not totally up to speed on all that the Romans did. I mean, I know they were pretty brutal. And they could probably be kind of arbitrary at times too, you know, and do very bad punishments, cruel and unusual punishments for different things. So now Jesus is there on the cross, the thieves are there, and in verses 39 to 44, you know, Jesus has already been mocked. Hail, King of the Jews, hit him on the head, spit on him, all that stuff. Now he's going to be mocked again in verse 39. Those who passed by mocked him. And then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him. And then even the robbers, the two robbers that were crucified with him, did the same. I always get a kick out of that last verse, 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him, I don't get a kick out of the content of it, but the translation in the King James, it says, they cast the same in his teeth. Well, there's no word teeth in the Greek. It's a very poetic expression to say they were hurling insults, heaping insults upon him just one after the other. I mean, it's, to me, it's kind of a ridiculous scene. I mean, you've got guys, two guys that are hanging on the cross about to die, and one after the other, they're just hurling epithets at Jesus, just curses. Like, what are you thinking, guys? 
Now we know that one of the thieves, after he hung there for a while, came to his senses and realized, oh, actually, you know, buddy on the other side, we're in this fix together with him. He doesn't deserve it. We do. We were malefactors. We were criminals. And so then he turns to Jesus in the center and says, Lord, remember me this day, uh, you know, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, well, actually, this day you'll be with me in paradise. What a comfort it was to that man hanging there and about to die, about to have his legs broken and about to be asphyxiated by the Romans as he hung there. Jesus was also mocked by the residents who passed by in verse 39, wagging their heads. I'm sure you can imagine what that looks like, you know, like put their head down and wagging their heads. This man, you know, you destroy the temple and build it in three days. Why don't you come down off the cross and save yourself? Can't you do that? If you are the son of God, you ought to be able to do that. And so they they mock him that way. I, I wondered, though, before I get even to that point, how many times did the residents who were passing by see people being crucified? I suspect it was, you know, for somebody that went through there, they saw it more than once. Maybe all the time, if there was any kind of crime like there is today in our culture. Um, how, many, how many times have they seen people hanging on a cross? How many mothers had shielded the eyes of their young children as they walked by from that horrid sight? Can you imagine moms and you have a five-year-old daughter or son? You're like, put a blindfold on, kid. Stop up your ears so you can't see and hear all of this horrible stuff. How many teenagers sat leering at the spectacle of men dying on the cross? It became commonplace so that there was a general kind of reproach on the criminals, but I think Jesus, being especially famous, elicited from them yet even more blasphemy than they would have given to the normal guy. Oh, just some more guys they're killing. This was a a famous person. He became the subject of blasphemous ridicule. As get this, they trampled underfoot the king and creator of the universe. That's God hanging on a cross, and you're telling him that stuff? They didn't believe that he could truly come off the cross. They didn't believe that he could truly rebuild the temple in three days, but they mockingly reasoned that if he could fix the temple in three days and he was, in fact, the Messiah, he should be able to save himself and come down from the cross. But you know that in, in mocking him, they revealed their ignorance. I, I, you've seen this perhaps too in, in the modern day. People will mock the Bible and they'll say some quotation that's terribly taken out of context and they demonstrate their utter ignorance. They don't even know what they're talking about, but they're making fun of it, ha ha. And you're just sitting there saying, huh, the ha ha is on you. You don't even know what you're talking about. Ignorance. But, so, and they didn't realize or remember or learn really from John 2 that Jesus was not talking about the temple complex that Herod had rebuilt when he said, and tear this down in three days and I, and I will raise it up again. No, he was talking about the temple of his own body. The disciples knew that. But see, his words had been twisted and turned into a soundbite and put out there into the common 
you know, parlance turned into propaganda and turned against him. Sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's what humans do. Lie and deceive and, and don't get the story right. and all. They, under, they misunderstood entirely what he was doing. Remember John chapter 12? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. The next verse says, this he spoke, signifying by what way he was going to die, by being lifted up. His being lifted up was the means of the salvation that we enjoy and that they could have enjoyed if they had taken it. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Three days later, God answered. He is the son of God. I declare him to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead because he, in fact, did rise from the dead. It wasn't then on the cross that he was going to declare his power or his sonship to God. He was going to declare it three days later. They were asking for him. This crowd, these passers-by, were asking for him to do something too soon. It wasn't time yet. Chief priests also were mocking. Hang with me just a couple more minutes. With him, the scribes and the elders... To me, there's something terribly and especially distasteful about this. You have spiritual leaders, religious men, older men, educated men, scribes, who lower themselves to the point of mocking and blaspheming the Son of God, this man, even if they strenuously disagreed with Jesus. They should have a holy sense of dread that a man is dying, his life is being snuffed out on the cross, if not even more sensitive than that. You know, a state, I can't remember which state it was, recently had an execution, maybe you saw it in the news, or somebody who had uh, abused and killed a woman. And it just causes me pause every time I hear that to think, you know, somebody had to actually put that person out take them out of this life. And even though that man deserved what he got, it's no fun to think about him getting what he deserved. I think that's like what the Bible says when it says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's terrible. It has to happen, but it's terrible nonetheless. Now it says in um, down here in verse number... Uh, 42, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Why did they think he saved others? Lazarus raised him from the dead. Uh, the blind man, John chapter 9, the man who was lame at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, many, many people that he saved from, from blindness, muteness, deafness, lameness, death. Uh, but he, they said he cannot save himself. He has a fundamental inability to save himself, they thought, to fix his situation. But they were wrong on that point as well. John 10, 18 says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up again. The crowd said, if he's the son of God. The scribes said, if he's the king of Israel, let him come down. In fact, look at this in verse number 42 if he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. That's a fat lie. 
because days later when he rose from the grave, a far more stupendous thing, they still didn't believe him. They still didn't believe him. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 31, Jesus talks about Abraham speaking to the rich man in Hades and Lazarus in his bosom, and he says to the rich man who wants to send somebody back from the dead to tell his brothers don't come to this place, Abraham says to him, look, even if somebody goes to them from the dead, they still will not believe. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe in them. And Abraham, uh, the rich man insists. Abraham says, nope. They won't believe even if somebody goes back to the dead, from the dead, from, uh, from the dead to them. They won't believe. So they did not believe. Their hearts were hardened against Jesus. Whatever he ended up doing, they wouldn't believe, just as Abraham had said. I've talked about the robbers already, how they mocked him. But in Luke 23, it tells us how one of the uh, robbers became the repentant thief. We call him the, the good thief as opposed to the bad thief, if I can say it that way. And I want you to take note of this. When that event happened, the thief turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus do to him? He cared. He was kind. I mean, on a cross, you could probably be a little mad and upset and angry about things if you're hanging on a cross. Jesus was not. He didn't turn to him and say, you know, you've been a real louse. He had been a real louse, but he received an undeserving sinner to himself with care and kindness, not with rebuke. And that, my friends, is how God treats us when we come to him in faith-filled repentance. God does not turn away any who come to him. Don't think that you're too far past gone for God to receive your, your repentance. God will gladly receive it, and he will not trash you for that. So just file that away, my friends. Anybody listening here, anybody that listens later, you think, nope, it's too late for me. <laughs> if you said those words, it's never too late. It's not too late. You're still alive. You can still repent. You can still say, God, I'm sorry for the sins that I have done. I cry out to you in faith. I believe in Jesus. Well, we close this way. The gospel here portrays for us a severely suffering Messiah. His physical suffering was matched by his emotional torment. You know how many people turned away from Jesus? Almost everybody. The disciples ran off. Even Peter denied him. This, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the soldiers, the people walking by, even the two thieves on the crosses. I mean, you'd think you could find some friends in them if they're in the same boat as you. He couldn't. Emotional devastation, besides the spiritual torment of being punished for the sins of the world, the perfect man was the off-scouring of the world. And, and, and the thing is that people that did this to him, almost everybody misunderstood him entirely. Jesus did have the power to come down from the cross, but it was not God's will for him to do that. So if it wasn't God's will, the Father's will, it wasn't Jesus' will. You know why? Because he said, not my will, but thy will be done. God's will for him was to go farther. It was not to just hang on the cross for an hour or two. God's will was for him to die and to be buried and then conquer the whole situation by rising from the dead. He saved others 
and he also can save you. He did not save himself so that he could save you. You get that? Let me say that again. He did not save himself so that he could save you. He had to provide for your salvation. He is, in fact, the Son of God. He is, in fact, the King of Israel. He did fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning the suffering servant and will yet return as the conquering Lion of Judah when the time is right. That is our suffering Messiah, Jesus. And uh, I'm thankful that he didn't save himself so he could save you and me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you will bless uh, this word to our hearts, help us to uh, treasure it, to store it away, to remember what we've learned, and to be challenged by it. Thank you for each person who's here tonight. It's a special privilege to be with these ones, to teach them, to be taught by them in prayer, and to receive a fellowship and to give fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.